be it splinters on one side, um, versus a very dry bone, a, a dry stick, if you bend it, it just kind of like snaps instantly. It takes much less force to break a dry bone than this green bones. So those things were always in conflict. It's like, well, for me as a biomechanist, what is it? Do we need strong bones or do we need bendy bones? Because I couldn't figure out how we would get both, given this idea that bone density was the way to stronger bones, more mineral content. Hmm. But then with newer research, it says, like, well, it turns out that the minerals are in a goo form. So when you have more minerals, more more mass to the bone, it's it's really just full, like full of more goo. So you do get more dense, but that density comes with suppleness, which was mm. which was exactly what I had been missing. And that's what, you know, when you are working in science, like there's going to be things that are kind of in conflict until you find the next little bit. So I was just really amazed at that. That made so much more sense. But yes, you know, this idea that bones are strong because of solely what you eat is not an accurate reflection of the process. You know, bones are constantly selecting their density based on load, based on how much you use them. So within a sedentary culture that doesn't call on really, you know, vigorous or abundant or well-distributed use of their bones, then you see that even if you had all of your minerals and were consuming them, the bones would not be signaled to really do anything or put anything in because the bones aren't they're not diseased and they're not losing the mineral because they're diseased as much as the lack of the density there is a is a reflection or can be a reflection of your use pattern. Mm. So it was just trying to add this idea. It's like it's more than just taking a supplement. You could think of movement as really the uptake signal, um, especially site-specific movement as in, as creating your bones going, oh, okay, you're going to use this here, but we're going to have to beef up. So that's hopefully that is helpful to some who are, you know, trying to figure out how to, you know, create or maintain a robust skeleton is you want to keep moving. I just think that's so cool. That just points it right back into the idea of ecology that you were talking about, where there is this tendency in our culture to end game. You know, where they're focused on exercise or really high level workouts when it's it's also just about moving from what your book and what your studies are telling you. There's a there's an ecology inside each of us and that we are also a part of the larger um, ecology. And so I just (laughs) that just is pretty, pretty incredible. Um, As we wrap up, I know um, you've got an event coming up and it is sadly sold out for those who want to see you are there other events on the horizon oh yes you know i'm always bopping around you can um (laughs) (laughs) i teach uh like i have a dynamic aging course and that's in california in april and there's always there's always retreats or courses that i'm doing locally or that some of our teachers are offering that that support some of the other books that i've written where you can learn how to do the exercises in a live format so yeah there's the horizon is full, Great. <laughs> full well, of movement opportunities. Wonderful. So how can our audience get in touch with you? Is there a website? And how do they get a hold of this awesome book, Movement Matters? <laughs> uh, nutritiousmovement.com. That has everything. It's got books, events, podcasts, articles. You can, you can uh, go in there pretty deep. Awesome. Well, we've been speaking with Katie Bowman, biomechanist. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been wonderful. And the time is 6.03, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. And coming up next is the Queer Boo Corner, featuring This Way Out and followed by Sprouts at 6.30. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Finance Committee will meet this month on February 22nd at 4.30. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the 41st Portland International Film Festival happening in movie theaters all over Portland through March 1st. 
The Portland International Film Festival is the Northwest Film Center's annual showcase of New World Cinema. They'll show 90 feature films and over 40 short films with a focus on new directors, documentaries, new works, short films, animation, and PIF after dark. Again, that's the 41st Portland International Film Festival happening in movie theaters throughout Portland until March 1st. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. I remember the night of the first Mardi Gras, meeting up with a friend in Oxford Street. The Downhurst police were very upset that we were there and wanted to know what the bloody hell did we think we were doing. A lot of people were staying out of the bars onto the streets. And then some people saw a whole lot of police cars going into King's Cross. They were going to teach us a lesson and say that we would never come back on the streets again. It was the birth of our modern gay and lesbian rights movement in Australia. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappelle. Malaysia's press parrots the government's pathetic homophobia, rights advocates condemn Indonesia's anti-queer attacks, and 78ers recall the Sydney Mardi Gras' brutal beginnings. Those stories and more this week now that you've tuned into This Way Out. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Tanya Kane Perry. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news interaffecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending February 17, 2018. The continuing campaign against LGBTQ rights in Malaysia was marked this week by a leading newspaper publishing an article telling readers how to spot gays, and the government banning a scheduled concert by Hong Kong pop star Denise Ho because she's an out lesbian. Gay men, the Sinar Harian newspaper told its readers, like to wear tight clothes to show off their six-pack abs. They go to the gym to work on said abs, but also to ogle other men. The guidelines also claim that gay men adore beards and mustaches. Lesbians, on the other hand, enjoy hugging one another and holding hands and can be spotted by alert readers because they hate men and enjoy belittling them. Arwind Kumar, one of the country's biggest social media stars, wrote that, I know a lot of really, really religious people who love keeping beards. Are you trying to say that they're gay? That's how stupid this is. The story was accompanied by an interview with Hanafi Malik, a leading Muslim cleric, who warned that homosexuality was on the rise in Malaysia and that there was an urgent need to stop it. A still-in-effect colonial-era law punishes private, consensual, adult, same-gender sex in the Southeast Asian nation by up to 20 years in prison. The Malaysian government initially banned screenings of the hit live-action Disney film Beauty and the Beast last year after the studio refused to cut one scene suggesting that the antagonist's sidekick might be gay. And this week... One of Asia's most famous pop singers, Hong Kong's Denise Ho, was denied entry into the country for a concert in April in the capital city of Kuala Lumpur. 2,000 people were expected to attend. In a note on her Facebook page, Ho said that Malaysian officials suggested that her request for a work visa was rejected specifically because she's an out lesbian who frequently expresses her support for LGBTQ rights. Ho performed in Malaysia in 2006 without any issues. She came out publicly in 2012. Everyone has the right to be themselves, she wrote this week. We can be openly gay as someone else can be Christian or Muslim. The United Nations Human Rights Commissioner and lawmakers from several other Southeast Asian countries this week condemned the continuing campaign against LGBTQ people in Indonesia. Officials use the country's draconian pornography laws to prosecute gay people because there are currently no statutes specifically making gay sex a crime, although proposed legislation now being considered would outlaw all sex outside of missionary position heterosexual marriage. Upping the ante, one Indonesian MP called this week for all gay people to be executed. UN Human Rights Commissioner Zaidi Al-Hussein said during a press conference this week in Jakarta that the hateful rhetoric against this community that is being cultivated, seemingly for cynical political purposes, 
will only deepen their suffering and create unnecessary divisions. I hope the common sense and strong tradition of tolerance of the Indonesian people will prevail over populism and political opportunism. A group of current and former regional lawmakers called Parliamentarians for Human Rights, an offshoot of the influential Association of Southeast Asian Nations, is urging Indonesia's House of Representatives to reject the bill they are now debating that would criminalize same-gender and premarital heterosexual sex. Filipino MP and PHR member Teddy Bagalot said that, it is extremely worrying that private affairs between two consenting law-abiding adults could very soon be opened to government interference and scrutiny. The situation is even worse in the Indonesian province of Aceh, which has special permission from federal authorities to govern under harsh Islamic law. Aceh was the site of the notorious 82 lash canings of two young gay men in the public square last year, and most recently of police raids on a number of beauty salons that detained and publicly humiliated at least a dozen transgender beauticians and customers. The Aceh government this week announced that any beauty salon owned by a transgender person or employing transgender people would lose its operating license. It's a sign of how inhospitable Aceh is now perceived to be that less than 200 competitors have signed up for the upcoming annual Aceh Marathon. Tourism officials had expected 4,000 runners. Aceh Governor Irwandi Youssef admitted that the lack of enthusiasm might have something to do with the way his government treats LGBTQ people. A new marriage equality lawsuit was filed this week in Bermuda. A gay Bermudan man, 38-year-old Rod Ferguson, is challenging the recently enacted Domestic Partnership Act 2017 that was belatedly signed into law by the British Overseas Territories Governor John Rankin last week. That measure, passed by Bermuda lawmakers in December, overturned a May 2017 Supreme Court marriage equality ruling and allows same-gender couples to only enter into domestic partnerships. The government claims that domestic partners will have all the rights of married heterosexual couples, but critics around the world disagree. Ferguson's lawyer, Mark Pettingill, announced the new legal challenge this week. He represented the gay couple that successfully won the Supreme Court marriage equality case last year. He's also Bermuda's former attorney general. Pettingill told reporters this week that his native Bermudan client currently lives in the United States and has a boyfriend. He would like to have a family life, but with a partner of the same sex, he said. And his ability to do that in his home country, Bermuda, is not available to him. Rod became the person who was prepared to put his name out there and stand by his beliefs, he added. It's very courageous. Pettingill said the legislature's unprecedented revocation of court-ordered marriage equality violated the island nation's constitutional guarantees of freedom of association and equal protection of the law. In Bermuda, same-sex marriage was legal, and then we took it away, he explained. The real significance is that it is the removal of an existing right. Donald Trump's Education Department made it official this week. The agency will not consider bias complaints lodged by transgender students simply seeking to use campus bathrooms that match their gender identity. Discrimination complaints by at least four different transgender students were rejected by the Education Department last year. That policy has now been made official. It shed another Trump reversal of an Obama-era initiative. Obama's Justice and Education Departments argued in several federal court cases that civil rights laws banning bias based on sex extended to sexual orientation and gender identity. The Trump administration insists that gender identity is not a protected category. Some transgender students are even forced to use separate facilities on campus, which stigmatizes and alienates them from their peers. But Elizabeth Hill, a spokeswoman for the Education Department, told BuzzFeed News that Long-standing regulations provide that separating facilities on the basis of sex is not a form of discrimination prohibited by federal law. Senator Patty Murray of Washington State, a top Democrat on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, called this week's formal announcement an unambiguous step backwards for civil rights in this country. Eliza Bayard of the queer education advocacy group GLSEN described it as a cruel new policy. And the human rights campaigns Sarah Warbelow condemned the move as reprehensible.
In the latest queer news out of the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, bisexual Belgian speed skater Irene Woost became the most successful speed skater in Olympic history this week by winning gold in the women's 1,500-meter race. The 31-year-old athlete teared up when she realized that she had earned her record-breaking 10th Olympic medal. She's currently in a relationship with Dutch skater Leticia de Jong. Canadian Eric Radford became the first openly gay man to win a gold medal at the Winter Olympics when he and partner Megan Duhamel won the top prize in the team figure skating event. Radford was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and lives in Montreal, Quebec. He's engaged to Spanish ice dancer Luis Fenero. The Olympian summer calling America's new gay sweetheart, 28-year-old figure skater Adam Rippon, won a bronze medal in the team figure skating event this week as part of Team USA. He made early headlines by rejecting a meeting with Vice President Mike Pence after he criticized the choice of the former Indiana governor and gay cure supporter to lead the U.S. delegation. At a recent news conference, Rippon addressed what some critics have called his flamboyance. I can't tone it down, he said. I've got so many messages from kids all over the country. I think as an athlete, I use this platform to my advantage. I think it's giving my skating greater purpose. And finally, Rippon's friend and fellow Olympian freestyle skier Gus Kenworthy has the proverbial letter from his doctor to excuse him from having to meet Vice President Pence. He's echoed Rippon's refusal to go to the White House with other Olympians if they're invited. Kenworthy announced on Twitter late this week that he'd broken his thumb, showing the x-rays to prove it, but assured his fans that it won't stop me from competing, but it does prevent me from shaking Pence's hand. So, silver linings. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending February 17th, 2018. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Tanya Kane Perry. And I'm Wenzel Jones. I was actually terrified because I didn't know what was in store for us the rest of that night, where we were going to be taken. It was a night like if you were there, you'd never forget it for the rest of your life. It was quite amazing. Beatings and busts, not beads, at Sydney's first lesbian and gay Mardi Gras. But first... Australian poet Dorothy Porter, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Brash, political, and sexy, Dorothy Porter breathed life into Australian literature. Born in Sydney, Australia in 1954, she was hooked on words and language by age 14. After attending Sydney University, she published her first volume of poetry, Little Hoodlum. Perhaps her best-known work is The Monkey's Mask, published in 1994. This award-winning crime thriller about a lesbian detective made her a lesbian icon. Porter's works include eight books of poetry, five verse novels, and libretti for two operas. She often wrote with music blaring to tap into the dark potency of rock and roll. In 1993, Porter moved to Melbourne for love. That love was Andrea Goldsmith, a revered author herself. They shared a home for five years until Porter's early death from breast cancer. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Pat Fishback. If I were a frog, here is what I would say. It's hard being green. It's hard being gay. Hi, this is Janice Ian, and you're listening to This Way Out. Support your local public radio station, you ain't gonna get this nowhere else. Sydney, Australia can hardly wait for Cher to rain love and understanding down on this year's 40th anniversary lesbian and gay Mardi Gras. 
Events are already underway, and the world-famous Grand Parade and star-studded after-party are a far cry from the night of outrage against police brutality in 1978. That first Mardi Gras has been called Australia's Stonewall, the first time lesbians and gays fought back. But activists had been working since 1970, creating organizations like Sydney's Camp, the Campaign Against Moral Persecution. Camp pursued civil rights issues, planned protests and social gatherings, and most importantly ran a telephone hotline for people struggling to come out. Those early efforts prepared the political soil for the legendary 1978 Mardi Gras to take root. Eyewitnesses to the 1978 Mardi Gras melee vividly described their experiences in an award-winning 1999 documentary produced by Barry McKay, who's now a correspondent for This Way Out. It begins with Sydney Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence's Lesbian and Gay History Walk. Here's Mother Inferior at the area's famous King's Cross, or The Cross. The Cross is also the site of one of the most important events in the history of the struggle for gay liberation, the 1978 Mardi Gras. The police raid on the march took place along the Darlinghurst Road strip in the cross between here and the El Alamein Fountain. Here are a few of the original marches to tell the story of that evening. Lance Garland. We thought that we should change the way the the atmosphere at our demonstrations to make them more fun events because obviously demonstrations in in america were uh, much more successful at attracting a wider section of the uh, homosexual community than we were uh, ron austin i think suggested to a meeting at camp that we should have a mardi gras to celebrate stonewall as well as the political marches. I remember the night of the first Mardi Gras, meeting up with a friend in Oxford Street. We had decided that we would join in celebrations. We weren't in fancy dress, but dressed in our usual gear. Lots of people were in fancy dress. In the advertising, we'd told people that it was fancy dress, because it was Mardi Gras. I got a police permit from Central Police Station. Unfortunately, they never notified the Darlinghurst Police that we would be having the demonstration, so when we were all assembling in Taylor Square, the Darlinghurst Police came over. They were very upset that we were there and wanted to know what the bloody hell did we think we were doing. And when I showed them the um, permit, it made them even more angry. Uh, but uh, even with that anger, the, the, the feeling of the crowd was quite excited and uh, it was a joyous night. Everybody was so happy and uh, to be out in the street and dancing down Oxford Street with music that we loved, it was just a fantastic night. I marched with members of my household and a lot of people were saying out of the bars onto the streets and getting people to join us. We had quite a lot of stunned onlookers, I might, might admit. It wasn't uh, quite the scene you'd, you'd see there today by any stretch of the imagination. When the Mardi Gras got going, it was a fabulous sort of momentum to the evening. The truck was there with the music. We were marching along with a range of other people that we knew. We got down to uh, College Street, and that is where we began to realise that all was not entirely... Officer was around the back of the truck, and he got to the batteries that were uh, supplying the power for the PA system, and he disconnected the batteries. By the bottom of Oxford Street, we had maybe 1,000 or 1,500 people. But then the police wouldn't let us go into Hyde Park and grabbed the truck with Lance Garland and some other people and took it away. So we had no central way of informing the crowd what was happening. And people were really hyped up and had been together for a very short time and there was a sort of real threat of anti-climax. The march took off 
up towards the cross. There was a general cry of up to the cross, up to the cross, because uh, you know, there was fairly spirited resistance to police stopping gay marches in those days. But as we went up William Street, it turned more into a demonstration. You know, we didn't have banners and stuff, but we started to chant things, you know, like two, four, six, eight gays just as good as straight and stop police attacks on gays, women and blacks and so on. There was no music, but people were still excited and skipping along and um, one man ran, young man ran past me and he called out, I'll never hide again, as he flew past me through the air as he jumped. And then, as we went to King's Cross, some people saw a whole lot of police cars going into King's Cross. I do recall when we did get up to the cross and into Darlinghurst Road, marched down to LL Main Fountain, and then realised that the police were moving in on us and moving in en masse, and that was exceedingly freaky. Once we got there, there was a very strange feeling in the air. They were going to get us and they were going to uh, teach us a lesson and uh, say that we would never come back on the streets again. The police came in and blocked off the Coca-Cola sign entrance and paddy wagons came in and then came up and actually trapped the marchers in the middle. And then all hell broke loose, the violence erupted, people began getting arrested. And the police were being very violent, grabbing people by the hair, twisting people's arms up their back. Yeah, I mean, people were being sort of picked up bodily and thrown into, into paddy wagons. When they put people into the vans, they just didn't gently push them in. They threw them in so that they hit the back of the, the van with their heads or their bodies. You could hear the banging. Uh, the police grabbed me by both arms and I was picked up, physically picked up, um, and then thrown toward the paddy wagon. I, by, by that stage, knew that I had sort of bruising or felt that I was going to have massive bruising across my chest. This sleeve had actually been ripped right out of my leather jacket. And I mean right out. There was not a single thread still attached to the shoulder of my jacket at all. The women and some of the men started fighting back and releasing people that were being arrested. Um, and the, of course the, the violence was quite serious. And it was just total and absolute mayhem. People were screaming, yelling, crying. There was every sort of emotion that you could possibly imagine. It was like shooting fish in a barrel, basically. That was how it was. It was just a, a roundup, like cattle. But the fight back continued and, and when they'd open a van to throw someone in, sometimes five people would all jump out. And, uh, and then the people who were standing around would grab the vans and try to tip them over, they were rocking them. It was a night like, if you were there, you'd never forget it for the rest of your life. It was quite amazing. So you know, I was pretty miserable by the time I got into the wagon and I was actually terrified because I didn't know what was in store for us the rest of that night, what was going to happen, where we were going to be taken. 53 people were arrested and the police retreated down to Darlinghurst Police Station with the people they got and they were quite brutal to many of those people and kept people in a lot of people in quite small cells and were delaying releasing people. So. People from the Mardi Gras then moved back down to Darlinghurst and there was an all-night vigil to bail people out. And I was in a cell with probably around 24 other women up at Darlinghurst Police Station who were just herded in like animals. A few blankets were thrown in for warmth. The old Darlinghurst cells had virtually no heating and there was a large bucket uh, for us to drink from and there's a lot of chatter, a lot of hugs, a lot of cuddles, a lot of reassuring 
and also a lot of discussion about what was going to happen to us. And we stood outside, hundreds of us, chanting out, let them go, let them go. Um, later on, of course, we heard that people who were inside, who were scared and being intimidated by the police, some were being bashed in the, in the cells, could hear us outside chanting out, and that gave them a lot of support. They knew that, you know, they just weren't abandoned in the cells. And it was that chanting and knowing that people were out there in support of us that I suppose offered some sense of reassurance that we were going to be <laughs> rescued or something was going to happen that wasn't going to keep us in those cells forever. And a lot of the drag queens like Trixie, who knew what was happening in the Oxford Street and King's Cross venues, started raising quite a lot of money and people rang their friends and everyone got their rent money and money just started, cash started arriving there to bail out the 53 that were arrested. They wouldn't let, um, you know, lawyers or doctors in and we knew that people were being beaten up badly inside or were badly injured. And it was an amazing night to see all of this money that seemed to come. The people went around the bars collecting money and everywhere. It just came in and everybody was bailed that night. I was so relieved to actually get out of this, <laughs> out of the, uh, the police cell at Central. And several of my friends were down there waiting for me. Also, I do recall sort of people actually saying, was I hurt or had I been hurt? And one woman, uh, Wendy, sort of taking photographs of the, the bruising, which had already begun to come out. I mean, really, um, people's names got published in the papers. People were sacked, people suicided, a whole lot of things like that, or at least one that I know of did. It was the birth of our modern gay and lesbian rights movement in Australia. And um, I think it's great that it's grown like it has into this wonderful event, but I think it's really important that we understand that the reason why we have this Mardi Gras and this freedom today was because of that struggle that we took part in. If, had we not fought back, had we sort of allowed the police to intimidate us and gone back into our closets, there'd be no Mardi Gras now and we'd be just as bad off as we were back then and, and I think that um, you know people should realise the, the history of the Mardi Gras and what it means politically to us. Thank you to the original 78ers Lance Garland, Sandy Banks, Diane Minnis and Sister Mary Third Secret of Fatima for sharing with us what it was like that night. You can hear correspondent Barry McKay's original Sydney Gay and Lesbian History Walk radio series at historywalk.tripod.com. And you can take a History Walk via video with some of the 78ers who made the trip last year at thiswayout.org. Thanks for choosing This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Program material this week came from Wenzel Jones and Tanya Kane Perry, produced by Steve Pride, from Pat Fishback, produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and from Barry McKay. Cher performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Ivana Foundation, the estate of Christopher David Trentum, our contributing affiliate stations, and you, our individual listener donors who make this program possible. Look for This Way Out Radio on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google+. Smile at Overnight Productions on Amazon. Email Radio at AOL.com or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on WTND Make Em Illinois, Free Radio San Diego, San Diego, California, Fresh FM Blenheim, Nelson, Tasman, Eastern Golden Bay, New Zealand, and more than 200 other stations around the world, including this community radio station. Now y'all, stay tuned. This is reporter and producer Grace Ann Smith, and you are listening to KBOO Evening News and Public Affairs here on your favorite authentically radical radio station, 
where you get to listen to real radio made fresh daily, 24-7, 365 days a year. KBOO keeps Portland and the Northwest radical by giving everyone the microphone. Go to your Kickstarter right now and pledge your support today so that KBOO can continue to give people with less visibility a larger platform. When you join the KBOO donor circle, your world becomes more interesting and real because of the different lived experiences you get to listen to. Donate to our Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter. Donate to the campaign and share it with your friends. And thank you for your support of KBOO. KBOO trains media makers. We believe community resilience happens when citizens learn how to make their own media. For the last 50 years, KBOO has trained thousands of citizen journalists to report on what goes on in the streets of Portland and far beyond. We know that with our expertise and your support, we can keep the city activated and aware through radio. Invest in Portland's future media makers and join KBOO on Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter. Donate to the campaign and share it with your friends. And thank you for your support of KBOO. We have found communities that just embrace us with all kinds of queer people and straight people, families that have come together in all kinds of ways. It affords our son the opportunity to see and feel and touch and learn from people who look like him, people who don't look like him, people who have similar stories to his, people whose stories he could have never have imagined otherwise. Welcome to Sprouts from Pacifica, Radio from the Grassroots, a weekly program that showcases radio productions by independent community media. We bring local stories to a national audience, produced by a different local station or independent producer each week. This week, we present Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is a listener-supported production of Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Jamie speaks with LGBTQ activist and consultant Gabriel Blau about his experiences as a gay parent. Gabriel talks about growing up gay and shares his experience with adoption. He also discusses the importance and privilege of finding the right community in which to make his life. This is the first in an outcasting series on gay parenting. Gabriel, in the interest of disclosure, we should mention that you're a member of our advisory council. So thanks for that and welcome to Outcasting. Thank you so much for having me. Has your family been supportive of you both as a gay man and as a gay parent? Yeah, I've been very lucky. Uh, I grew up with a pretty progressive family and community. And while I struggled in a variety of ways, personally and certainly experienced homophobia in a variety of ways growing up in the 80s and 90s, my family did accept me and has been there with me all along. That is, of course, not the experience of so many LGBTQI people in this country. But for me, uh, my family has really been an important part of my journey. What kind of homophobia did you experience as you were growing up? Well, you know, homophobia takes a lot of different forms. And I think for me, the persistent, even latent forms were very uh, difficult to decode and stuck with me for a long time. Uh, Watching the news as a child in the 80s, Uh, where gay people were only talked about as sick and as dying and as plague-ridden and as pedophiles is something that has taken me a long time to get over because it was just part of the world around me, being taunted and called names by classmates, the constant use of gay and and queer as a slur, you know, created an environment in which I didn't want to be out, in which I didn't want to be gay, in which I didn't want to be me. And that's difficult for any person to deal with, being bullied or beat up by other kids because they just knew I was different. Those are things that uh, are too common and remain too common in schools and among our youth. Why do you think some people believe that homosexual people shouldn't have or raise children? There's a long history of defending, defining, and fighting for what is what constitutes a family. It dates back really well before this country was founded and well before modern times. All faith traditions that I'm aware of have taken it upon themselves to define family in a variety of ways. 
And the importance of defining family cannot be overstated in many ways because how we define family impacts today, for example, our laws of who's responsible for who and who gets access and privilege in relation to who else. I think a lot of people are scared when they see what they're used to as family being redefined or what they see as redefinition because it it threatens what they understand the world to be like and what they think the world is supposed to be like. I think change is scary for people, but my being a parent doesn't really impact other people's ability to be a parent. And I've often wondered why is it that someone would care if their children saw me and my husband with our child, how it would impact their own children and their family. But by seeing us on the street, seeing us in the playground, seeing us in their schools, they are forced to accept that what their family looks like isn't the only model, the only picture of what a family can look like. And what they believe and what their faith tradition or social and communal traditions have held up as family just aren't the only model. And the truth is we've seen this bear out in research over and over again that when people see families like mine, when they see us in action, they begin to understand. They see more commonalities and differences. They don't feel so threatened. When they see us take care of our child, they realize that we're doing exactly what they're doing. When they see our child look to us for security, for comfort, they see what their children do. And they begin to just understand us the way they understand their own family. That's been borne out over and over again in research. And it was critical to achieving much of the equality we've achieved legally. We used to think that in order to achieve equality for LGBTQI people, we had to not show LGBTQI people and their families. We had to show our parents, our friends, our allies talking about us, these third-party validators. And it was effective, but it wasn't as effective as we needed it to be. And so despite our own market research and, you know, trying to strategize, we started showing our families, and it turned out that that was far more effective, that when people saw us, they couldn't hate us. They couldn't discriminate against us. Now, all too often we know people discriminate against us anyway, and that is really painful. When somebody who doesn't know LGBTQI people doesn't believe in my equality, well, that's painful, but I know that once they see me, they'll understand that I'm just a person and we're just a family. But when lawmakers who have seen us, who have experienced our families and our friendships and our communities, who have watched us and know better and know the data, when they fight against us, that is really scary to me because they know that we're just people. And science is also on our side in that case. Science has shown over and over and over again that children raised by gay and lesbian and trans parents are just as likely to be successful in life by a variety of measures as children raised by straight parents. Like the majority of children in this country are not raised by married heterosexual parents who are their biological parents without any kind of medical interventions or or that they're still married or, you know, this idea of what family is actually is the minority experience of America's children. And we, as LGBTQI-headed families, are really part of a very vibrant mosaic of American families, families that support each other in all kinds of ways, that come together in all kinds of ways, that are married and not married, that are based on kinship families and adopted families and surrogacy and uh, had to use medical intervention, uh, children who are brought up by one parent, children who lost a parent, children whose parents are divorced. We've seen all kinds of families succeed, but we do know that the one thing they need in order to succeed is consistency, and we cannot expect America's families to provide that kind of consistency and support to their children if we're not providing our support as government entities and as organizations. We, as a country, need to support families. We have to take care of parents so that they can take care of their children. And that's true no matter 
what sexuality or gender identity those parents or their children have. So talking about your family, I know that you have adopted a child. How was that process for you? Our family came together um, in 2008. And for us, the process of adopting was incredibly organic and meaningful. It's hard to imagine. And I've, I've had this conversation with lots of parents and with children who have come together in all kinds of ways, that whatever process they chose was an organic, meant-to-be kind of process, where it's hard to imagine their family coming together in any other way or being a family in any other way. It's hard to imagine our son not being our son, and it's hard to imagine not being his parents. We chose adoption uh, early on when we knowing each other before we even were ready to have children, and it was a process that happened a lot faster than we expected it to. Adoption sometimes is, it takes only a few months, and sometimes it takes years. For us, it was just a few months, and the result was just perfect. I really have no other way of saying it. I, I think one of the things that's interesting is that when we became a family and adopted, we, like many LGBTQI parents who adopted that we know, saw ourselves as part of the LGBTQI community. And our experience as adopted parents was, was kind of a secondary identity. But as time has gone on and, and our child has grown and our family has continued to explore ourselves as a family, we've seen ourselves more and more as part of the adoptive community, this very diverse, wide-ranging community in America that has has chosen adoption as the way they create families. And that's in part because when you adopt, really no matter how you have your children, you have to think about what impact that process has on your child and on your family as a whole. And so whether you use surrogacy or donated sperm or adoption or foster care, there are these communities out there of all kinds of people, rich and poor, LGBTQI and straight, who have been there and have experience and share experiences and talk about what it's like and what it could be like. And it's not just about parents, it's about the youth and what they need. And every family is unique, but there's so much to be learned. And I think this is really one of the amazing things about being part of both of these communities because we span the experiences. It's very common for LGBTQI-headed families to be seen as LGBTQI first, but those experiences as uh, marginalized parents really melt into the background when you have a family and you are worried about your children. Because that's what all parents do. We only worry about our children. That's all we care about. And so discovering and becoming part of these other communities is so vital. And it also helps break down these misconceptions or fears or barriers that exist around families like ours. Because these other people that we're meeting in these communities, they see us as a fellow sojourner on this adoption journey, on this family journey. And they recognize that we may look different, but they also look different from what other families look like. And that we have this bond, this decision that we've made to build our families in this way. So for us, it's always what we wanted. It's, it's what we did. And it's created a family that I can never imagine not existing. I think the greatest misconception, though, that people who don't adopt have is that adoption is somehow less magical or something. Uh, it is as organic feeling a process as any can be. It has its own twists and turns and uniqueness, and it, it happens in its own way every time. And so the end result is one that just feels completely unique and meant to be. Has your local community been accepting? We are so lucky to live in a place where we are accepted and embraced where we are not the only adoptive family, we're not the only multiracial family, we're not the only LGBTQI-headed family. We have just tremendous diversity where we live. And that's luck and some decisions we've been able to make. So much of the discrimination that people experience in America and all over the world is really about where you're born and what kind of family you're born into. 
we are lucky to have been born and been able to stay around New York City and to have the kind of privilege that has enabled us to stay here and grow our lives because we have found communities that just embrace us. We belong to an amazing synagogue, Fort Tryon Jewish Center in Washington Heights that is just a diverse, wonderful community with all kinds of queer people and straight people, families that have come together in all kinds of ways, other multiracial families, other adoptive families, families who use surrogacy, uh, single-parent families and dual-parent families and, and all kinds. We have a school community where our son goes to school that is tremendously diverse, where the families come from everywhere and are of all shapes and sizes, with tremendous uh, immigrant community, documented and undocumented, that have become part of our universe and we part of theirs and our neighborhood in general is tremendously diverse. So we're really just so lucky and it, it really matters. It's hard to imagine living in a place that isn't diverse because it doesn't just add to our lives in a sort of special extra way. It is a vital part of our lives. It is what enables us to see the world the way we do. It's what enables us to feel supported the way we do. It affords our son the opportunity to see and feel and touch and learn from people who look like him, people who don't look like him, people who have similar stories to his, people whose stories he could have never have imagined otherwise. And it's a richness that is absolutely a privilege, but is also vital to how we are in the world. This is Sprouts from Pacifica, this week featuring Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Jamie is talking with activist Gabriel Blau about gay parenting. You seem to be very lucky in where you live in with your community, but there are also, as you know, a lot of other people who live in uh, not-so-diverse areas, areas that aren't so accepting. Do you know anything about that kind of experience as well? I've been very lucky in life that I've gotten to spend most of my career working for equality and justice, and most of it for equality and justice for LGBTQI people and families. And it's taken me around the country. I've gotten to visit all kinds of families and all kinds of communities. Uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with and meet with people who come from all kinds of experiences. The truth is, in America, children of LGBTQI parents and LGBTQI people of all ages experience discrimination in all kinds of ways and experience it consistently and at rates that are far higher than most people imagine. Still more than 40% of our youth experience some kind of bullying in school. There are constantly stories about our trans community being harassed and murdered, especially trans women of color, arguably the most marginalized community in America. We have tremendous disparities based on the colors of our skin, based on our economic status, uh, and just where we were born and where we grew up. I think what's interesting is that there was this idea that we all had, and that we still all hold on to because there's such promise here that the internet would eliminate these differences. It so clearly has not. I pass by the George Washington Bridge on a daily basis and I look at it, and I'm reminded every day about Tyler Clemente, who was just over in New Jersey, and we have this this notion that if you're close to a place like New York or if you're in a metropolitan area, you feel supported and you're in an LGBTQI-friendly environment. He was just over, just over the bridge and came to this bridge halfway to New York City and killed himself. He took his life because he, he couldn't see a world in which he could be happy. And suicide is the result of, of mental illness, uh, in in certain ways, I don't I don't want to overstate my expertise in it, but we know that the world around us contributes to our sense of our own ability to live in it, and the bullying and harassment we experience 
really impacts how we imagine ourselves existing. And so when I think of Tyler and I, I think of stories like his, I think we have so much work to do, so much outreach we have to do to create safe, secure, and supportive communities wherever people are. It's not enough to be close to a metropolitan area. People in New York City, youth in New York City, don't feel safe. PFLAG NYC, one of our great organizations here in New York City, still serves thousands of people every year because right here in New York City, families feel harassed or bullied or unsupported. On the other hand, I know families who have chosen to move back to Alabama, for example, so that their lesbians, I know more than one family like this, lesbian couples who have chosen to move back to Alabama so that their kids could experience some of the great aspects of life in Alabama. This is a state that passed a law to allow adoption agencies to discriminate against LGBTQI people because for some reason they think the faith of the people who work in an adoption agency should take priority over the needs of their state's children. So it's a complicated tapestry. I know so many people who live in places where they, on one hand, can tell you horror stories, and on the other hand, can't imagine living anywhere else. And so many people who would live somewhere else and can't, because we don't live in a, in a country in which most people are easily mobile. This is one of the things that's so interesting about the LGBTQI community. We are born of every color, every religion or not, every economic status, every demographic you can imagine. We are born into it and we are born in every place in every corner of the earth. And it is through that and the experiences we gain that we then walk in the world and can impact the world. The LGBTQI community and specifically the LGBTQI family community is the most diverse community that has ever existed. LGBTQI-headed families are vastly more likely to be multiracial couples and way more likely to be multiracial, a multiracial family, parents and children. They come from everywhere and then they come together and they share those experiences and form a new family and in, in a new community. The impact that this can have on our country is just tremendous. It is the impact that identity and experience coming together to raise the next generation. It's really immeasurable. We've already seen these youth grow up to be these incredible ambassadors. Not that it should be their job, but so many of them have chosen to do this because they come from diversity. They come from unique experiences, and yet so many of them say that they don't feel like their experience was so unique. And that, in and of itself, is a message that is changing communities because these youth stand up and say, you know what, I am a child who doesn't look like my parents. We, we all have different color skin. My parents are both queer. I'm adopted. My sister is, uh, you know, through a surrogate. They have these you know, these stories that we used to call these crazy stories. They're not crazy, they say. And you know what, I grew up in school and maybe they have some stories of some harassment, and sometimes they have, even have horror stories, but most of the time they say, well, I grew up in a school where I was just one of the kids. And families that had a problem with us quickly learned that they had to either keep it to themselves or that there's no reason to have a problem with us. And I've heard these stories over and over and over again as I've gone around the country and I've spoken with people, and it just is a, a tremendous thing to watch people tell their own stories and to watch audiences hear these stories and realize that there is hope, that there is a way out, that there's a way towards acceptance and support for LGBTQI people and LGBTQI families that comes not just from advocacy, which we need, right? Because Alabama, we have Nebraska, we just won a case, thank goodness, um, against a discriminatory bill in Texas. We have this new um, anti-trans bill. Uh, you know, we all know about what happened in North Carolina and Indiana. These are things that are happening now. So we need to advocate, but it is that our community is everywhere that is ultimately changing hearts and minds in a, in a truly magnificent way.
from your perspective, are there any differences between your family and a straight family? Every family is different, right? But I think in the, in the important ways, no. Every family has to figure out their story and overcome their own hurdles, whatever they may be. Every family is unique. So we as an LGBTQI-headed family, as an adoptive family, as a, a multiracial family, as a family that lives in New York, as a middle-class family, you know, we have to contend with all of those things in whatever ways they impact us. But every family does. Uh, so I don't think I don't think there is such um, there are differences that are kind of these what people assume would be you know straight families are like this and gay families are like that I don't think those those differences exist I do think that like with all families our experience helps us see the world in different ways and being part of a multiracial family has pushed me to see the world in ways that frankly I probably wouldn't have or wouldn't have thought to really explore and dedicate myself to otherwise. And I'm certainly grateful for that. What advice would you give to other gay couples with children? Breathe. I always, uh, I get this question a lot. I actually wrote for a book on gay parenting. Uh, they asked me to write the, uh, the epilogue. And I read through the, all the stories that were in this book. And ultimately, my message is to breathe. Breathe and let it be. Explore, come to a decision on how you're going to become a family. There are lots of ways. All of us can be families. But whatever you choose, make it yours. It's going to be exciting and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging and it's going to be incredible and life-changing. Now, there are some specific things that LGBTQI parents need to worry about. There are legal implications. You should always work with professionals who have real experience with LGBTQI families and LGBTQI law. Right? Work with 